This is Recognize, a podcast about the NHL's black and biracial hockey heroes, proudly supported by eBay Canada. Ever since I was a kid, I collected hockey cards with spare change my dad gave me. As a black person, to see others like me on the ice inspired me. They were my role models and showed me hockey is a game for everyone. I've collected 100 rookie cards for NHL's black and biracial players, and I'm going to talk to all of them so you can learn their stories. There's always a certain magic in the air, though, when Canada plays the Soviets. Clears it along the boards and winds up out at center ice, and Darren Lowe is there. On defense now for Team Canada. Darren Lowe was born in Toronto in 1960. He played eight games in the NHL with the Pittsburgh Penguins during the 1983-84 season and 67 games for the Canadian national team, including the 1984 Winter Olympics. I guess a moment in my life that I was extremely happy to have the opportunity that I had something that I thought would never actually happen through most of the time that I was playing hockey as a kid anyway. After leaving the ice, he pursued a long and celebrated career coaching the men's hockey team at the University of Toronto from 1995 to 2017. His rookie card is from 1983. It shows Darren in the gold and black of the Penguins. He's on the ice, full of concentration as he glides forward to the next play. Let's meet the man from the card. I'm just going to start out with by asking you what comes to mind when you see this uh, rookie card, I'm going to hold it up, Pittsburgh Penguins, and I can see you have a uh, jersey on the wall there as well. So what, what comes to mind? A long time ago. <laughs> and uh, I guess a moment in my life that I was extremely happy to have the opportunity that I had something that I thought would never actually happen through most of the time that I was playing hockey as a kid anyway. Do you remember um, when that photo was taken? Can you tell us the year and where it was taken? Uh, I'm almost certain it was taken in uh, 1984. It was in Pittsburgh, and it was probably just in warm-up. Um, so that's my best recollection. I've, uh, I don't know. I think I've seen that photo before, but there aren't a lot of photos because I wasn't there for a real long time. So. What was the arena called back then? Was it? Um... Well, they called it, it was the Igloo, which uh, I think it was the Pittsburgh Civic, Civic Center. And I I actually went back there before it was closed. I took the university team there. And so we were at the arena. And then I went back when it was the, it's now the PGP Gates. I, I took my... My family, along with another hockey family, and it was in the summer, and they were kind enough to take us around for a tour of everything. And we were in the room, and it was it was it was great for the kids for sure. Did you ever collect cards as a young person, um, or when you were a professional? And uh, have you kept any of your cards? Uh, I certainly kept them as uh, a kid. Uh, we used to play cards against the wall at school, like a lot of kids did back then. Um, I didn't have a super huge card collection, but I do have, uh, some cards now that I've kept for quite some time. Uh, the most famous card I probably have, it was an Eric Linderless rookie card. And it just happened to be that I was friends with his brother and 
I got some of those cards and then my own cards, they're just minor league cards. And we had some here and then they kind of like everything else in our house sort of disappeared and people were looking for them. And we eventually came across uh, a couple of them. Um, I know that there's, as my friends would joke, I think there's a, even an, me with an NHL jersey on that's about five cents online. You can buy it. But uh, I don't have one of those. I only have my minor league cards here. Yeah, because initially when I was finishing off this project, I had submitted the IHL and AHL cards for you. And then um, someone made up the custom card, which I think was also in one of the magazines before. So that that's neat. And um, I want to jump ahead. Something I found interesting, if you can confirm or not, but I, I found that you had played one game with the Kingston Canadians in OHA, which um, which is now what the OHL is now called, in 1977. And what's more interesting, I think you played, Tony McKegney was on the team at that time. Um, we, we all know what Tony became to be as a, a one of the first black hockey stars. He was 19, you were 16. Um, so I'm wondering if you recall that at all, if you walk us through that. And did, did you and T Tony speak at all during that time? Well, it's very true that that happened. And um, what what the sort of backstory to it is I was drafted by the Ottawa 67s and I was uh, I didn't make the team uh, in two attempts. I, I came pretty close. I was right. But everybody says, oh, that was the last cut. But I actually was the one year. And then the second year I went where I thought I was going to make the team, I got injured in camp and then. One of the things that happened back then, I mean, they had my rights and Kingston and um, Ottawa were fierce rivals. And so I was playing for the North York Rangers. And interestingly enough, uh, a couple of the guys on the team at that time were Paul Coffey and Bernie Nichols. And um, Bernie, I believe, was a Kingston draft pick. Might not have been the same at the exact same time, but... Uh, they used to call players up from North York to play for Kingston and Ottawa was never allowing me to do so uh, because I was, uh, they, they were rivals. So they didn't want me to be helping their rival, but eventually uh, they allowed it to happen and I got to play and it was at Maple Leaf Gardens so that was kind of a thrill for me to be able to play at Maple Leaf Gardens. And yes, Tony McKegney was on the team and he was a guy that I was like enthralled with. I don't think I said a word to anybody. I just kind of kept my head down and, and played. I think there was three of us that got called up. Paul Coffey was one. He'd gone up a few times and another guy by the name of Claudio Lessio. So I, I remember that quite clearly just because it was played at Maple Leaf Gardens and because of like the inability for me to actually get called up and play for Kingston because I was, I was Ottawa's property. Very interesting. So, so was he no, a known player to you and other people years before that time or? For sure. At that time, he was a known player to me. Uh, I mean, as I said, I probably just like stared at him the whole time I was there and, uh, and there was some other guys there. I think Ken Linsman was also on that team and a, and a few other guys that played in the NHL after that. Uh, but certainly that was kind of a thrill for me, even though I'm not sure if he said a word to me or if I said a word to him, but 
Yeah, that was a pretty cool moment. Neat connection for this project because we interviewed uh, Bernie Saunders. And I don't know if you know, Bernie played a, a few games with Quebec Nordiques. And he also, I don't know if it was regular season, but he had affiliation with the Kingston Canadians as well. So I find that's interesting. All three of you had a stint with Kingston. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you just take a step back, can you um, share with us your first experiences with hockey and where did you grow up? Uh, when did you first start skating? How did you learn to skate? Who supported you? Um, I grew up in the Riverdale neighborhood of Toronto, which is uh, Broadview Danforth. So we were really fortunate because we had uh, ice rinks at both ends of my street. We had Riverdale Park on one end and we had Withrow Park at the other end. I was probably about... I'm going to say four years old or three years old when I started skating. My dad played hockey, so he was a senior A hockey player. Not at that time. He had finished playing by the time I started skating and everything. But um, I used to go to the rink. I think my dad would be at work and my mom would take me to skate at the rink. Although I think my dad took me more often because... My brother learned to skate originally with my mom all the time, and he wasn't a very good skater because my mom didn't skate much. Um, but yeah, that's where I started skating. It was at Withrow Park, and I uh, spent a lot of time playing shinny hockey there. My first organized hockey team was actually in the Catholic Youth Organization, which was a CYO, and there was a there was a, a team. I'm not catholic but there was a team in the neighborhood that was uh called holy name and so i was i think six years old a lot of the guys on the team were eight or nine and it was an outdoor league until we played in the ontario final and our team made it to the ontario final and we played in aurelia in the old rink there it's sort of a blur as to you know playing that year but that's the first organized hockey that I that I played so I was about six years old and when you mention outdoor rinks can you again tell us what time period that was in and how many outdoor rinks were you playing in um that was probably like 1966 1967 around then and I only recall us playing at Withrow that was kind of our our home rink um and as I said we had a rink at the other end of my street and it's really strange because uh, I went to Shinny and skated all the time at Withrow Park. My brother, for some reason, always went to Riverdale Park. And we never, we weren't in the same, we're three years apart, but we never played Shinny together or anything. He, I guess he just had his buddies and they skated over there. So uh, that's the only recollection of playing at an outdoor rink. Uh, but I'm sure there was probably some games at other outdoor rinks. I want to link back to what you mentioned about your father. I read in a CBC article that um, he played an all-black line in 1950s for the Mount Forest Redmen. And I, I understand intermediate hockey was pretty big at the time. And uh, they would pack the arenas uh, largely because your, uh, your dad's line of Sheffield, Lowe, and Smith. Can you tell us more about this story? Well, um, I, don't, I don't know a lot about it other than because um, my dad had finished playing hockey by the time like I was old enough to really chat about it. he never really he just used to tell my brother and myself how good he was and, <laughs> and then, um I 
what I do recall was how my father actually got there. Apparently, there was a friend of his that was going up to try out for the team, and my dad tagged along. And the friend apparently got cut, and they hid my dad's equipment so he wouldn't go home, and they gave him a job. And I asked my brother this the other day because I wasn't 100% sure my dad had dementia before he passed away, so we hadn't had those conversations. But um, from my recollection, um, I think and my brother sort of said to me the other day, I think he worked either at a car factory or a dealership or something there. And so he was able to work while he was there playing. And I do know the Sheffields because another connection is my cousin, Frank Sheffield played with one of the Saunders at Ryerson and they were two black defensemen that were pretty good players um, at the time. So um, we knew the Sheffields. I, I okay, I wasn't aware of that. That's an interesting connection. Yeah. Yeah. So, so are you are you saying did he grow up in Mount Forest or he got recruited to play for Mount Forest? To, he, he grew up in Nova Scotia. Um, he was uh, from Glace Bay and came to Toronto uh, to work. And then I guess he, as I said, a friend of his was going to try out for the team up there and he, he tagged along and he ended up staying there. So that's kind of how that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So I managed, uh, I imagine that uh, his, all his experiences in hockey rubbed off into your brother for sure. So for you, what position did you play and what were some of the uh, memories you have playing hockey as a young person, that Catholic league? And I imagine you moved on to some sort of rep play or whatever it was called back then. Yep. I, um, well, I played center most of my time and I played in the, uh, MTHL, which is now the GTHL. And I was never on, uh, I mean, today they have triple a double a and single a, uh, back then it was a and B when I started. Uh, so I was at the B level. And then I think in Wee they changed it to double A and B. So I played double A and Wee, but I have to say that I was on the worst team in the city. We <laughs> think we won a game. And I won't say the organization because, well, it's kind of funny because I was involved in the organization afterwards and we won a national championship when I was helping them because uh, my son was on the team. So, uh, you know, it came sort of full circle. But anyway, uh, then I went back to A hockey and I didn't play double A until my draft year, which was midget. So I was never a talked about player in Toronto or I was a good player, um, but I wasn't a talked about player. And then I was drafted um, and I played center. Uh, then I played tier two junior A like at North York because uh, I didn't make the OHL or OHA at the time. And then I went to college, but that's where I changed to being a winger. And, and I probably succeeded because I changed to wing because all the good players played center and I wasn't, you know, maybe the best player at the time. And I just kept getting better and the wing was where I belonged. So that really kind of speaks to just um, having faith that players develop at different stages. And you're sounds like you're a really hardworking player, really enjoyed playing the game and just uh, kept developing. I mean, every kid's end goal is to play in the NHL, but 
it wasn't a realistic thing for me, I didn't think. And also with the Olympic team, I used to listen to the national team play on the radio. And so I thought that was really cool. And I thought, well, that may be one thing that I could do. <laughs> but in reality, it was probably like it was a pipe dream when I was young to think that, oh, I was going to play on the national team. So, um, yeah, I just kept playing because I really liked playing and I just kept getting better. And I was, a, uh, you know, if there was one thing about me, I was a really good athlete. Uh, I played a lot of sports. I was good in track. And so I think my athleticism really helped me as I moved further along and then started to kind of get recognized as, oh, maybe this guy can play a little bit. So that helped. Yeah, that's neat. Cause I had similar experiences um, growing up as well. Really liked track and field, liked soccer, um, tried some volleyball. I remember going to U of T at one point in time, trying high jump. And that was a pipe dream to sort of make the Olympics. And I just sort of capped out. I couldn't jump any higher at one point in time. I knew, I knew I, I had to try something else, but, but I can relate. Um, so you named some players. Can you reference anyone else you played against who went on to become NHL stars from those early years or junior years or. Yeah. Um, try, like it's interesting because people will talk about the MTHL or the GTHL and producing all these professional NHL players. And really within each age group, there's only one or two guys that actually do end up playing in the NHL. Um, so from our age group, I mean, Paul Coffey was a little bit younger than me and as was Bernie Nichols, but, uh, Larry Murphy was another player that was sort of in that age group that did play in the NHL. When I went to a really big tournament, which was, um, I think the biggest midget tournament that back in those days, uh, midget was the year before your draft year. Now it's minor midget. But um, there were a number of guys that I like Ray Bork was in this tournament it was in the Ottawa area, uh, Jim Poplinski, Mike Bullard, um, Doug Shedden, who I ended up playing with in Pittsburgh. Uh, I played against him in the Richmond Hill Midget Tournament, which was a, a really big tournament. So there was quite a few guys when I played in a couple of the more elite tournaments when I was in my draft year um that did play in the nhl but that the, they were tournaments where there were people from outside of toronto versus uh you know within the within the mthl there was only a couple of guys so yeah so let's talk about that uh full scholarship to u.s international university how did you end up playing there uh, did you have other scholarship offers and how did you land back to u of t after all that <laughs> well that was quite an interesting story because i was uh being recruited by Dartmouth College. And that was an Ivy school. And I was, uh, I'm not going to say I was a great student, but I was a pretty good student. And so I kind of, I, I was thinking, okay, this is where I'm going to go. And uh, A, my interest was in the area of physical and health education. They didn't offer that. Uh, everybody was in business at the school. And I was not a mathematician. <laughs> so I, I was thinking, ah, business might not be the best route for me. So that was one thing that caused me maybe not to accept that offer. And then the other thing was at the Ivy League school, it's only uh, financial aid. So my parents, who were not wealthy people, but 
uh, were smart enough that they owned their home uh, and you were able to do something like that back then, they were able to own their home. So it made it a little bit difficult in the sense that I'd have to pay more than I'd have to pay to go to school here. And it was just, it wasn't all about getting a scholarship. It was all about being rational with your money at that time. So my parents said, listen, like, you know, it's not a program that you want to take. It's, it's uh, going to cost us more than it would cost for you to go to U of T or to go to York or Brock or any of those schools. So you may have to reconsider this. So once I sort of turned down that offer, uh, there was a, a guy that was our trainer at North York. Uh, and he had a good friend who was a Canadian guy that was going down to be the assistant coach in San Diego at USIU. So they contacted me and said, listen, we'll give you um, uh, almost a full scholarship, but we're not going to pay for your books. And one other portion, I can't remember what it was. And I don't know, as a, I guess I was 18 years old or something, I called their bluff and I said, if you give me everything, I'll come. And within, I don't know, a few hours, I was working at a Thrifty's jeans store on Young Street. I got a call. They said, we'll give you everything. I said, okay, I guess I'm coming. So so I went, and uh, that's, that's how I got to USIU. And it was a great experience in the sense that I lived in California. I was away from home, um, so I had to grow up a little bit. We were playing NCAA Division One teams because we were a, an independent team, and we were really successful, and I was really successful. So the school part of things wasn't so great. <laughs> it was really easy, and I, I don't know, like, I was not someone that cared that much about school. Like, my mom used to always say to me, like, you got to do your homework. And I said, I'm done, and I go out and play, and I, I certainly wasn't done. But for some reason, I thought, you know, school is going to be important for me at some point. So I decided that. And the other part of it was I didn't mention this at U of T. I didn't get into physical and health education. I didn't have high enough marks. So once I went to this school, I had high enough marks and I reapplied and they let me in. So and they had a like a story hockey program and everything. So. That's how I got into U of T. And it's kind of like, you know, I, I don't know if people will listen to this podcast, but, you know, here's a guy that couldn't get into the school, went somewhere else, got into the school, and now he teaches there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and you developed as a player, it sounds like, within that year, and you developed as a student to to realize that, you know, you wanted to come back to U of T. And I also found it kind of fascinating that at that time, what year was that, San Diego? That was, I believe, I, I get my years. I, was, I played in a lot of different places. So 70, 79, I think, I think it was. It's impressive to think of the growth of, at that time, that's still pretty early to say that you had a reasonable schedule to play against other teams in the West. Yeah, we, we, we traveled to, like we had, see the big thing for a lot of the Division One programs that the, you can go to, San Diego to play. This will be a great vacation for our guys. And we beat them all. But we we were playing Ohio State. We played Bowling Green. I can remember that from the East. We played Denver from the West. Um, I'd, I'd have to look back. I've got some programs and stuff. But yeah, we, we had a really good schedule. We played great teams. And the next year, they were going to be accepted. And the other thing that happened 
and part of the reason why I left, not only from an educational perspective and the chance to go to U of T and play, but they were going to be accepted into Division One hockey as a full-fledged member. And there was a lot of guys on the team that uh, would not have been eligible. And I thought, you know, the team's going to struggle a little bit. Uh, here's my chance to go to U of T where I always kind of wanted to play. I used to go to U of T games when I was a kid and the rank was full and I was like, holy mackerel, I could play for this team. So I came back and played for U of T. So that was good. It's a good timing. Yeah. And then who was the, who was the U of T coach at that time for your years? Uh, the first year that I was there, it was uh, Gord Davies. And he was a guy that worked with, um, with Tom Watt for many years and he played for Tom Watt and he was a, fantastic hockey player at U of T and he played a little bit of pro hockey. And then the second year I played for Bill Purcell, uh, who's a legendary coach kind of in this area he coached at York. He's coached, he's coached a lot of junior hockey. And that was the year I think, I can't remember. I think it was that year we were undefeated or maybe it was my first year. I, we didn't lose very many games my whole time at U of T, but um those particular years I think we might have lost one game and maybe it was the first year with Gord we had 16 rookies and we didn't lose the game we we're undefeated so your mention of the packed arena I you know vaguely remember watching some of the national championships that they would put on CTV you were probably on those teams and also I think they covered the, the games on CHCH TV that used to show a lot of the OUA games so yeah Really, really good exposure for people to think about. Okay, other possibilities, not the NHL. Where else might you play? Yeah, yeah, it was because uh, there was a game of the week on CHCH, and I think McMaster played on a lot of them because they were a Hamilton-based team. But we were certainly on TV there, and I, I was more referring to like by the time I got to U of T, we played in sold-out rinks during the playoffs or sold out at varsity in the playoffs. Not so much during the regular season. Uh, I think, and maybe before, because I know I went down for national championships when I was 14, a buddy of mine's brother-in-law, and it, it was his sister's boyfriend at the time, but he was on the team, and I, I thought this was the NHL. <laughs> but I went, oh, this, it's amazing. These guys are, you know, these are like pro players. So if I could ever play this, it'd be quite amazing. Yeah, so. So uh, I don't know if I'm going in order here, but I'm going to ask you to talk about your journey and make it to the Canada's Olympic team. Uh, um, you were the first black Canadian to play on Canada's Olympic team. I want to ask you that, about that journey. What was the training like for the Olympics? Um, you played alongside some future NHLers and also I, I think you had played the Soviet Union time in 1984. So, um, Yeah, so what happened was they had a... Um, they they had these Hockey Canada scholarships, they were calling them. And so they identified a number of players in Canadian universities, because at that time, the team in 1980, if you, if you remember, it was uh, fully, with the exception of maybe one or two players from NCAA hockey that were Canadians, uh, it was mostly U of T guys and Alberta, U, U of A players, and Claire Drake, who was Alberta's coach, and Tom Watt, who was... Toronto's coach, most of the players came from those two programs. So they started uh, towards having more of a full-time program after that in Hockey Canada. And so they gave out these scholarships and I was lucky enough, I was identified at least as a candidate. Um, and so there was a tryout process. I got invited to a camp in uh, Montreal 
with a whole bunch of other Canadian university players and guys that played, I guess, NCAA hockey that were Canadians. And this was for all of Eastern Canada. And there's 50 players there. And then there was a second camp that was held in Winnipeg with 50 players uh, from the West. And uh, the funny thing about it is that if I look back, it's all about right place, right time. And, you know, who was there and not worrying about that kind of stuff is that there was uh, two of us out of the 50 that actually played in the Olympics from the Montreal camp. Maybe there was three. I, I'm not 100% sure. But if I was to look at all the players who were there at the time and then said, oh, two guys are going to make it from the 50, I would have just probably packed my bag and went back home. And and from those two camps, I think they invited um, uh, 50 guys in total, but it wasn't to, to Calgary for the main camp. Those camps were held in either June or maybe May in Winnipeg and in Montreal. And I just remember thinking, if I get an invitation out of this camp, and I, I did really well in the fitness stuff, and I had one really good game in the scrimmage games. If I get invited, I'll make the team. So I just kind of waited and waited for this letter to come to get invited to Calgary. And then I ended up getting invited, which was like, I thought, I oh, I'm going to be on the team now. And there was 50 players there. And I think there was only from the two camps, there might have only been 20, like 10 from each. And there was like another 30 guys that didn't even have, like they skipped part one. You know, they were NHL draft picks. They were high. Anyway, um, so I went there and then uh, had a fairly good camp. But I, I do remember a couple of moments there where we went, I think we went to Sweden for our initial training and they brought 25 of us to Sweden and I scored the very first goal of that entire season. So that was a good feeling. But when we got back, I think they called probably, they cut a bunch of guys and then there was about six or seven of us that they said, well, we're not sure you're gonna be on the team. Uh, so if you want to go back to school, probably, you know, pack your bags and go now. We can't guarantee anything. And I talked to two guys from U of T that were there and they were on the 80 team. And I said, well, you know, what do you think? And they said, well, you only get one chance to do this. So why would you leave? And the other thing was, there was a guy from my neighborhood, just a guy that I knew and he knew. And a lot of kids in my neighborhood knew that I went to the camp and they were all excited and they said, this is a chance of a lifetime and everything. So I kind of thought about that. I thought, yeah, I'm not going to leave. So I stayed. <laughs> but it was a tough, it was a tough year because they were bringing guys in like every week. There was a core group of us, probably, I'm going to say 15. And there was 20 that were eligible in the very end that got to play. But there was never a moment where I thought I'm on the team, except for the fact that I thought I played quite well and and I wasn't going to get cut, but that's just my own stupidity. No, <laughs> my own confidence in myself to think, ah, I'm going to, uh, I'll make this. So that's what happened. Was, was there starting to be a different outlook on, I asked that question about training and you mentioned you did well in fitness. Did that, did that help you? Were they looking for a particular type of player given 
the demands of the Olympics and the ice surface or whatever it may be? Was it? Yeah, I, I do remember us talking, and you alluded to the Russians earlier, uh, talking about like their VO2 max. And so where we had to be, and I remember we had to run five miles in 20 minutes. And I was able to do that as, as were most of the guys there. And so the team was quite fit. And they used to always preach to us that, you know, from a skill perspective, we're, we're not going to be as good as, you know, Makarov, Krutev, Lirianov, those world-class guys. But from a fitness perspective, we might be able to somewhat match them or we'd have to be in better shape. So I think that was a big, big part of it. But we played so many games that year. We traveled so much that, yeah, fit, fitness was important. But I think you had to be a fit person just to be there. So reading off some names that I noticed were on that team, if this is correct, Russ Cardinal, Kirk Muller, Pat Flatley. I, I know I have a friend of mine who's uh, friends with Pat. I met him a few times. Kevin Deneen, Bruce Driver, James Patrick. Mario Gosselin. So those were kind of all the core NHL guys that went through. Yeah. James Patrick was another one that was considered, I think the best defenseman out in the world outside of professional hockey at the time. There was a guy named Craig Redman who also played in the NHL. I think every player on that team with the exception of two guys played in the NHL at some point, two or three. So yeah, there was a lot. And I, I was a, Pat Flatley was my main roommate, so we were quite quite close. And he's from Toronto. As Bruce Driver, the same thing. The three of us were pretty good buds. So nice. Yeah. So can you um, draw out three main things that stand out about that entire experience? May not be hockey related, just something interesting you want to share about that whole. Uh, tell us where the Olympics were that year as well. Yeah, Olympics were in Sarajevo, uh, so Yugoslavia, which doesn't exist anymore. It's called something else, and it was bombed and so i always thought oh it'd be really neat if i could take my kids and family to where i was in the olympics but that's not going to happen um uh, i think one of the things that stands out is um and this is sort of the same thing that happens i think when you play in your first game in the nhl or you play in the nhl like you look across and you see like the national team of sweden they're wearing those jerseys and you're like Okay, they just look like another hockey team, though, but this is like real. I mean, we're playing the Russians, and yeah, they got the CCP on the front. So that was always something that I thought about. I thought, you know, I'm playing against a national team from another country, but it's just another group of hockey players. Um, but this is real. Like, you know, this is the national team of that country. So, you know, that was one thing that I took away from it. Uh, traveled the world. So I was able to, you know, go to a lot of places I would have never been able to go to, um, you know, and then I think just, uh, I, I certainly became more confident individual and, you know, I was shy as all get out when I was young. So that really helped me um, just public speaking and things like that and kind of coming out of my shell and having confidence in myself. Um, but it was tough. There, like a lot of us said we would never do it again like it was a great experience but to live out of a hotel for an entire year and to play 
I think we played 75 games and five of them were in Calgary where we were based out of and 70 were on the road. Like it just wasn't easy. And uncertainty about if you're actually going to be on this team, right. To be that committed all the way through for that grind, that must mean something. And then any goosebumps uh, you have from the opening ceremonies? Do you have any memories of, of that experience? Yeah, it was, it, it was, uh, I, I don't, I think I've even, I don't, I think I've shared it with my classes. I do. I teach a course in hockey and Canadian culture. So uh, we we talk about the Olympics and Canada and the Olympics, and there is no experience like walking into a stadium with seventy thousand people screaming, and you're representing Canada. So that was really cool. The three or four hours standing out in the freezing cold in the parking lot beforehand wasn't that great, <laughs> but but the the actual experience of walking into the stadium was was phenomenal um the closing ceremonies were not even close to what the opening ceremonies i most of us didn't even go to the closing ceremonies we were there but um yeah the the opening ceremonies were phenomenal yeah um and there's two other questions on this topic um just tell us how things fared for the team and do you think is there anything the team could have done differently that would have got you through the middle realm I also had that question about what it was like playing against the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, well, we had a better than expected tournament in, in some ways because uh, remembering that the the Czechs and you know, when they were Czechoslovakia at the time and the Russians were basically professional teams that none of their players were in the NHL at the time. And Sweden, same type of thing. And Finland, although they weren't as strong. I, I guess the one... You're always an Olympian, but to be a medalist at the Olympics, and we were in the game to win a medal, and it's a team that we had beaten a number of times, and it just wasn't our day, and we lost 2 nothing. So I guess the heartbreak of not getting an Olympic medal, and but you know, you're in the Olympics, so I, I don't think that you're sort of hard done by to say, well, I didn't win a medal. But that would be one thing that I would say, geez, that would be so cool to have that bronze medal because that's what we played for. And <laughs> my friends actually used to make fun of me like, oh, you're the guy that didn't win a medal. <laughs> so it, it's kind of like, yeah, they're still my friends because they could make fun of me, say, you know, you didn't win a medal. Most people would be, well, wow, you were in the Olympics, right? But they were more like, you're the, you're the guy that came forth. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that, that would be, could we have done anything different? You know, just had a better day that day, but we just didn't. And any um, recollections of the talents you played against again with the Russian team, like uh, Krutov, Makarov, some of the players you mentioned? Yeah, because I was, uh, I guess, fortunate enough to play on what we would consider our top line. I played with Pat Flatley and Kerry Wilson. That was another guy that you didn't mention, but he played he played in Calgary and his his son was actually a longtime NHL player as well. Uh, as was Dave Gagne. There's another guy and his son still playing in the NHL. Um, but I played with Pat and and Kerry. And so we were considered the top line and we had to play against uh, or we did for a bit. Dave Tippett uh, played against uh, that famous line of uh, Krutov, Larionov, and Makarov, but we also played against them. So that was quite daunting. And, you know, I guess at the time you don't think too much about it, but that it was somewhat intimidating. The other teams, not so much, uh, 
not an intimidation factor, but playing against those guys. Uh, Cause I think maybe the following year, 18 of them or something were in the Canada cup. <laughs> so that's the quality of player that, that we were playing against. And you remember that, that talent level that you had to go up against in terms of the quality players they were, did they really stand out that way? Yeah, it was extremely high because I, I did go up to the NHL after that. And I mean, it was a different style of play. The skill was maybe the skill was very high, maybe not as high as the Russians, but it, the physicality was so, much greater. Yeah. Okay. Much greater. Um, and I had to ask about this recent story that came up about your jersey. And why did you kind of explain to us that uh, someone found your jersey? Tell us where you, they found your Olympic jersey. And then I guess it almost got in the hands of someone that was going to pay $1,000, but then the Hockey Hall of Fame got involved. And so now your jersey's in the Hockey Hall of Fame. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think um, you can't see it because you can see my Pittsburgh jersey, but I've got a Olympic jersey just up in front of me here in my office. But the we got to keep one jersey. And then I think at, in, in those times and maybe for a long time, the equipment people would have the other sets of jerseys and somehow they get sold and like some of them could be signed. I, I, I don't really know, but I didn't have possession of that particular Jersey and I guess it's been authenticated. So, um, you know, someone bought it somewhere uh, like they probably bought a bunch of really great jerseys that were from well-known people. And they said, well, throw this Jersey in uh, for your money. And so, and I think I was even contacted by the person that had the jersey at one point, and then they were contacted by someone that wanted to buy it from them, and then the Hockey Hall of Fame got wind of it, and I actually lived, uh, I still live in the same house, but down the street was one of the keepers of the cup, and so I have a connection to the hall. And uh, they mentioned to me that they, they had my jersey and they were going to put it in the hall. And so, of course, I don't know what my friends do. They make fun of me because my jersey's there, but I'm not there. Yeah. That's a neat story, though. So, so you, you yeah. had one all along, but this was the second jersey. That time. This, this was like, uh, I think it's a red jersey. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's a red jersey. Um, I, I even have a couple of like plaques and stuff. It's, it's really unfortunate. I mean, I do have some stuff up here in my office, but I've got a gold medal from the Spangler Cup. I, I, I don't know where it is. Um, and there's other stuff that's in boxes. And the weird thing is I, I played at U of T with a guy that was in the 80 Olympics and I used to grill him constantly when I was his teammate. What was it like to play in the Olympics? Where's all your stuff? Oh, it, it's in, it's in boxes at my parents' house. So they're like, why would you put that stuff in boxes? And then sure enough, like I had a ton of stuff in boxes at my parents' house and I never took them out. And I, I even have stuff here now that like, my kids have kind of rummaged through it when they're, when they are home and they go, Oh, look at this. And then like, or I show them some of the stuff, but it's in boxes. Yeah. Special to have that stuff. If you're enjoying recognize and thinking about starting your own hockey card collection, I'd suggest you start with eBay. eBay is all about connecting communities and feeling passions. Because of its thriving card collector community, I was able to make my dream come true by collecting the rookie cards of the NHL's black and biracial players. 
Start your own collection at ebay.ca slash hockey cards. So before I move on to the Penguins experience, um, can you just reflect upon, is there any, what are the things you liked about hockey and uh, what might you didn't like so much? Um, I know um, for the topic of black players, sometimes the issue, it's tough to talk about whether there's been any issues of dealing with racism. Um, it varies across players. Some players uh, didn't impact them that much at all, some more so than others. So just wanted you to touch on those two themes, just about uh, your experiences, just generally with the game of hockey, just what you liked about first, and then the other issues of uh, potentially if there's any racism issues, racism issues you faced. Yeah, the I, I mean, I just love playing. Like I played on the street all the time, ball hockey. I played in the summer. I played ball hockey in a men's league. I just love playing hockey. And uh, my brother and myself, uh, we lived in a house where in the back there was a parking lot. And as I mentioned, there was also rinks at both ends of our street. So we used to go in the winter and skate all the time. But we played ball hockey at lunchtime. It was my brother and his friend who were was of the same age, three years younger than me. It was two versus one. And we played every lunch hour, like through all through elementary school. So and then from a hockey perspective, I think I was like ice hockey. I was always playing at the right level for me. You know, I wasn't playing like at the highest level in my age group because I, I I was good, but I wasn't that good. And so I think that if I had a played or been forced to play at a level that I wasn't, and this has happened with my son, like he's still playing hockey because he played at the right level. Um, and, you know, there's other issues uh, and reasons why kids continue to play and he's playing college hockey now. And we won't get into that at the moment, but it, it was just, I was playing at the right level is what I'm trying to say. So that kind of pushed me on. And then I got better and I got better. And I, you know, every time I got a good opportunity, I took advantage of it. Now I got cut from lots of teams too, <laughs> but, but, you know, that's all part of like perseverance and, you know, just getting better. And eventually there were so many guys that were way better than me that never played a game in the national hockey league, never played a game of professional hockey and never played in the Olympics. So, or never played for the national team. So, you know, perseverance is, is certainly something that, you know, I stuck with it and I played at the right level and I just got lucky, right timing. You know, I could say, Hey, I could have been luckier and I could have had a long NHL career, but you know, I, I'm not going to look back at that. I just, enjoyed what I did from the racism standpoint. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of guys that, uh, and, I, and I'm connected to a number of the guys like Jamal Myers lived across the street from me as a little kid, like his mom used to babysit me. So I knew Jamal when he was a baby. And uh, I, I don't, I haven't talked to Anson Carter in a long, long time, but I was his substitute teacher in high school. And the funny thing was, like, he was sitting in the room and not to be stereotypical because I'm a black person, but there's this black guy in the room with a hockey news. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. And he had to do some schoolwork. So I, can I can I look at that while you're doing your work? And then I found out who he was afterwards because a lot of kids said, oh, he's going to play in the NHL, this guy. Right. So that was really neat. Anyway, um, and I haven't heard a lot of stories from Jamal or like, I don't know a lot of these guys that well. I, I knew Kevin Weeks a little bit too. Uh, 
you know, sometimes it's uh, you just turn a blind eye to it and you keep pushing through and you don't take it personally because you're bigger than that. And I think, you know, my parents taught me that. And my dad played hockey, so he probably faced a hell of a lot more stuff than I did. And, you know, maybe because I was lighter skinned, I, I don't really know. But there were times when I certainly did face it, not to the extent of some of the stories that I've heard. And I've talked about this before, too. I'm not proud to say it, but if I was called a name, I got into a fight. And I'm certainly not a person that fought a lot, but... If someone crossed that line, that was now there's there's no fighting allowed for the most part in university hockey. So what what happened there? Did you face anything at that level of U of T? Because you would have been a top scorer as well, a bit of a target. Yeah, I, I maybe only one time in university hockey. Uh and I I can I can recall back in, in junior hockey. I mean, I could tell you some stories. I could tell you a story about something that happened if you want to hear it. Do you want to hear it? <laughs> so I was, I came back from the NCAA and I had junior eligibility left and that I didn't play for U of T right away. I, I played tier two junior A. So I was at training camp and I, I had already played in the NCAA and I had done extremely well. And I was, I'm not going to say I was ever a really big guy, but I was like physically stronger than a lot of the kids that I was playing at the time. And so we played an exhibition game and there was a bit of a scrum and this guy was just throwing the racial things at me and I couldn't get at him. And so, but I did remember who he was. So maybe about three weeks later when the season started, he got traded to our team and we wore cages at the time. I think we wore cages or we wore visors. I, I think it that part I can't remember, but I told the equipment guy, I said, listen, that guy over there, that's the guy that was ch chirping at me. I said, take my cage job. There's going to be a fight when we go back on the ice. And so there was a fight. He didn't do very well. And I explained to him why there was a fight, or I might've explained to him before there was a fight, why there was going to be a fight. And, and that was, that. but that wasn't my game. But, but if that happened to me, Unfortunately, that's the way I, I kind of dealt with it, but it didn't happen that often. That was, and it's unfortunate too, when you think of it, that, um, without, you know, term being allies today, whether it was the referees or the coaches, and you probably have lots of examples where people probably did step in and did the right thing. I've, I've heard lots of those stories, but it's unfortunate you had to sort of do that on your own. Yeah. And I think that like I, I'm on the GTHL board of directors and there's lots of like cases where we have this stuff, but, but the referees and the coaches often don't hear it. It's said from one player to another in a situation where no one else hears it. The odd time uh, people do hear it, but it's, it's probably something that either done like calculated that no one else is going to hear this, but I'm going to let this guy know. Um, but yeah, that, that was sort of my answer to it, but it didn't, it didn't happen that often. Like it wasn't like I was fighting all the time and maybe it happened and I didn't fight. I just ignored it. <laughs> so that, that also might've been what happened, but it, it wasn't like, 
it wasn't horrible for me to go to the rink. It wasn't like, oh, my own teammates. Like there was none of that. That it was it was comfortable. And you probably um this wasn't always the case, but the area was was probably having some other players of other backgrounds and ethnicities that may have helped um in that regard in terms of who you were you were playing around. Yeah, yeah. My when I first started playing my first year, I call him my cousin, but he was just a really good friend of my dad's from the, you know, a lot of the black people at the time would go to, I think it was Spadina Avenue and they had these dances and everything. And a good friend of my father's, his son also played with me. And so there were other players of color and other nationalities through my minor hockey career. And, you know, Toronto, I'm not going to say it was, super diverse at that time but it's still diverse like i mean if i was in a small town probably would have been a lot different so jumping ahead tell us about your uh, experience being signed to the penguins uh and describe how it felt playing your first nhl game well um at that time by the time i was in the olympic team i i thought i deserved to play in the nhl and i had I had two offers. There were, there were agents around the whole year because there's only a few of us that were free agents. I wasn't drafted. So there were agents around most of the year and guy that I was roommate with during, um, uh, during training camp. Uh, he actually used another fellow that you didn't mention, but he played in the NHL for a long time. His name was Doug Lidster. He, he cooked me up with his agent. And so this was a pretty big agent in the NHL, but the unfortunate part sometimes is, and I, I worked without an agent uh, for many years of my career because I wasn't big enough to be like well-known that the agent was going to spend a lot of time advocating for me. And if you went with somebody really small, they, they had no way to get in the door. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about an agent that I had, you know, through my pro, pro career that actually is quite a well-known person now. And he took me on, which was, and I was one of his only clients and he, he was very helpful. But um, anyway, my, my opportunity was to either sign with New Jersey or to sign with Pittsburgh. And um, they were both, <laughs> and it's kind of funny to think about it now, they were both battling for Lemieux. So they were battling for the bottom. So it was kind of like, well, they're signing me, but they're battling for the bottom. So it's just, I'm not that good. <laughs> and that's a joke that also travels amongst my friends that, you know, I, Mario Lemieux ended up in Pittsburgh because of me. So um, the one thing that did happen though, was they guaranteed me NHL games and New Jersey and hindsight, you know, had I gone there, they won the Calder cup. And then many of those players, Bruce driver included uh, went on, to win the Stanley Cup with New Jersey. But I chose Pittsburgh because I wasn't drafted and like I may have never saw a second in the NHL had I signed with New Jersey. So that was the reason why I, I signed with Pittsburgh. Um, they they were kind of a woeful team. Uh, obviously they got Lemieux. They, you know, uh, I think Luan Gotti was the coach and Eddie, Jack, Eddie Johnson was the GM. There's been specials, uh, one denying that they tanked and the other saying they tanked. And I won't say which one. If you watch it, you'll go. Um, but it was, you know, to be able to play in the NHL, it didn't matter who I was playing for. It was awesome. <laughs> it, it's interesting that tanking thing, because unlike today, 
it was the first draft. You finished last place. You got the last, the first overall pick. So you're right. It's uh, it's tougher to do that now. You can kind of have a lower point total and hope you get the lottery pick. But yeah, it really meant the first overall pick back then. Right, right. And so I think they were trying. If anybody played well, and I'm going to say that that was my reason why I didn't stay there because I played well. And so they said, you can't stay. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, I'll stick with that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So again, you must have felt some goosebumps the first NHL game. Can you tell us about that experience? And was it in Pittsburgh? Was it somewhere else? Uh, yeah. Sorry, I forgot that second part of the question. But yeah, um, it was it was in Pittsburgh. And um the thing about it, it was against Vancouver. And so one of my childhood heroes in the NHL, believe it or not, was Tiger Williams. And uh, he played for the Leafs. I just like, and it wasn't because of the fighting, because I, I wasn't a player that was a fighter, but he, he just brought so much energy and he was such an entertainer. And so who do I line up against in my very first second? And I have a picture of it. I don't even know if it's in here somewhere. Well, how did, how how was the picture taken? Was that just a fluke or? It was yeah. Someone just took the picture. I have the picture. It's behind me somewhere here. But anyway, uh, when I came on the ice, there was a, a round of applause. But in Pittsburgh, the team was so terrible that there was probably like six thousand people there. And he says to me, "In any other building, that's a standing ovation." <laughs> so that was my first second in the NHL against sort of my boyhood, one of my idols as a kid. And just because of his energy, like I love Bobby Orr and guys like that, but, but Tiger Williams was right up there. And, and here I skate out on the ice and I line up against him and I'm like, Oh my God, it's Tiger Williams. And that's what he said. So isn't there something else about that game? Did you score in that game? Did I read that correctly? I, I got an assist in that game. Um, I got a, I scored a goal in my last game. And again, like everybody's got a joke. Like the, I think the trainer said, uh, this will be a trivia question. Who scored their first and last goal yeah. in the same game? <laughs> but you, you checked off a lot of boxes though. You play in NHL, you get, uh, you know, a goal for sure. Some other points. Um, so any other memorable, um, stops in terms of home and away games that, jump out at you and uh again big stars you may have played against as well too which you just you were kicking yourself then absolutely yeah um so we played the islanders i was on a they, they put me on a checking line so i played against uh bossy gillies and trache i lined up against them two times like two games we played them and that was frightening because it was clark gillies that was lined up against me and uh against uh quebec it was the stashney brothers so i played against that line and then there was one other team i can't remember can i bring back tony did you ever end up playing against him did you ever play um i you know that's a great question i I know that like tony was in quebec but he might have been in buffalo yeah i think he was still in buffalo in 84 at that that time yeah Yeah. no i i didn't play against buffalo i played against buffalo in 80 i joined the national team Uh, that's another kind of story i oh they played exhibition games i played an exhibition game like i wasn't even i was not even playing hockey i was just at school and i got a call and then and it was like from my 
from Paul Titanic, who was coaching the team at the time. And I was practicing with them because I was ineligible to play. And he said, oh, you want to play against the Buffalo Sabres tonight? And I was like, are you joking? And he goes, no, you have to go to London. Team Canada is playing Buffalo and they want you to play. So I went, but I don't know if Tony was playing then. It was an exhibition game. But anyway, uh, yeah, I played against for sure the Gillies, Trache, Bossy, and Stashney. And I, I can't remember who else, but those are the ones that stand out to me. Any other memorable rinks too, like um, Chicago Stadium, Madison Square Garden, anything else jump out? Um, not, not so much. I didn't play in a lot of the played in New Jersey and uh I, I did play against uh with the national team we played against the Oilers so I played against Gretzky I went to camp with the Oilers too the the year after I played in Pittsburgh so and I knew Paul Coffey quite well he used to always come and talk to me when we were in like he'd come down they'd play Calgary a lot so whenever he was in Calgary he'd stop by and say hi to me and when I was up in because we played up there quite a bit I'd say hi to him but Played against the Oilers once with, with Gretzky, yeah. And flatly would have been for the Islanders, your your buddy uh, from Olympics? He... Yeah, yeah. He, uh, I I played against him, and that was, that was like, really funny and fun because we were really good friends. And when my season ended in Pittsburgh, I went and stayed with him in Long Island. He billeted with a family because uh, him and Pat LaFontaine were quite young, and they – both came in there at the same time after the Olympics and they lived with families. So I stayed with Pat and his Bella family for and about comes full circle. Yeah. Yeah. So then uh, we've talked a little bit about the penguins and uh, you're, you're, I guess you try out for a few teams. You decide that um, you're going to continue to keep playing pro want to tell us about that. And then I also have a note here that you, you, also played for San Diego goals. I'm not sure how many games, but incidentally, a nice connection again. Willie O'Ree went on to play with San Diego goals. And, and at the end of Tony's career, he ends up playing with San Diego goals. And <laughs> then you also went there for university. But yeah, I played my very last year. I played a full year there. So uh how my pro minor league career started, a good friend of mine in Toronto who I skated with, he was playing in uh, Flint, Michigan. And he said, oh, this team will, they'll want you to play there. And I was trying to decide whether I was going to go back to the national team again to try to play again in the 88 Olympics or if I was going to try to play pro. And I just saw that, I just thought and saw that a lot of guys that I played with in the Olympics were having pretty good NHL careers. And I just felt I could play in the NHL and it just would take like an, a break somewhere. So instead of playing for the national team, I, I, I went to Flint, Michigan. And uh, interestingly enough, the leadership there was great. Like Rick Dudley, who was a longtime NHL executive, and Don Waddell, who now, you know, basically runs the Carolina Hurricanes and is a real successful hockey man. Uh, they were they were in charge of that team. Don actually, he was a player coach and, and Rick was the coach. And I played with a guy named John Collett who ended up playing the NHL for Pittsburgh and the Leafs and Hartford. And he was involved, I think, in the Ron Francis trade that brought the, basically put Pittsburgh over the top to win the cup. But I had a fantastic year playing with John and I think I was third or fourth in the league in scoring at over 50 goals and hundred almost 120 points. So that kind of revitalized my 
pro NHL aspirations. Um, so I signed with Boston and there was something kind of wonky that happened there. And I don't blame the people in Flint. They were looking for money. And I ended up being a guy that didn't have a development uh, team connected to me because most guys come out of junior and they, and the NHL team pays money. And if, if you know anything about Boston at the time, they were like one of the more frugal organizations in the national hockey league. Always like they, they still have great players because they don't overpay their guys. They, they have the same philosophy today as they did then. And unfortunately they were asking for a development fee now to the minor league team that I played for. And they weren't going to, they weren't going to buck up. They said, we're going to have to put you on an American league contract. And it was really unfortunate because everyone on that team, like we, they, they were also very shorthanded in, I played in Maine, uh, Portland, Maine for the Bruins farm team. And they only had 12 players signed. Uh, the rest of the guys were coming in from college. They were playing on a 25 game tryout. Everyone was getting called up to the NHL team. And I was close to the leading goal scorer on that team. I might've been second. And I didn't get called up once because I was on an American League deal. And as soon as, like, in order to do that, they'd have to change my deal. And then they'd have to pay the development fee. So they said, we'll give you more money to play in the minors or you can go somewhere else. And I just thought, again, my own confidence in myself, well, they're going to end up paying more money because I'm going to play on the NHL team. And technically that year, had I been on an NHL deal, I'd have played a lot of games. So after that, I, where did I go after that? I think I went back, I went back to Flint. I signed with the, the Rangers. It was the Rangers farm team. And that was a bit of an interesting story because <laughs> they asked me to come to camp and I've been through this whole go to camp, get sent down, live in a hotel for a month. And so I said, am I going to make the team? And they said, probably not. And I said, you know what? I'm a little bit older now. I think I'm just going to go get an apartment. I've lived in Flint before. I'll wait till the guys come get sent down. And they were okay with it. Like I, I just didn't go to camp and, you know, hindsight's 2020, but what ended up happening was I think for the first month of the season, I was leading the league in goals for sure. And all these people, reporters from New York were calling me, Hey, like, how are you going to get called up and all this stuff? And I was on a minor league deal you know, why didn't you go to camp? And I was like, well, I never thought I'd get a chance to play in the NHL. And then I broke my cheekbone. And I had surgery and everything. And I missed a bunch of games because of that. So I didn't know there was such a re um, restriction based on these contracts. So it sounds like if you had been connected with, you mentioned like one of the junior teams or whatever, a few more might, might have been, might have been, might have been, it might have been different. Like it, it was a development fee in the one case and in the other in the other case, it was, I didn't go to camp. Um, you know, I was older at the time and I just thought like, I don't want to go spend two weeks in a hotel in New York. Then I got to come back to Flint, Michigan, spend another two weeks or three weeks in a hotel. I'm not that I wouldn't have been on the team in Flint, but it just would have delayed like getting comfortable there and everything else. And I pretty much knew I was going to be playing there. So I thought, I don't want to go spend two or three weeks in a hotel. I've been in so many hotels in my career that it was, it was not appealing. So, and then I, where did I go after that? 
I think after that, I, I, I was, I was trying to retire. <laughs> I think, I think that's when I went to San Diego after I played in the second time and I was trying to retire and Don Waddell called me and I, I used to go visit Flint cause I had lots of friends there I'd go in the summertime and there was a local pub that he knew the owner and I knew the owner and uh, you know, we had a couple of drinks and he took me in the kitchen. I signed the contract. <laughs> so I went to San Diego. Were you aware of Willie O'Ree at the time, by that time or earlier? I, uh, I think I was aware of Willie O'Ree and I actually met Willie O'Ree um, in San Diego. I was introduced to him. He probably wouldn't remember that. He was doing security stuff at the time. And I actually, my friend who lives on the street or lived on the street here, who was a keeper of the cup, when Willie was getting inducted into the hall, he drove Willie around. So I asked if I could go down and meet him and get a picture with him at the hotel. And well, that happened. I got, I got to go down and meet him. And I don't know if we even discussed that I had played in San Diego and met him there, but uh Anyway, yeah, there was that connection, and I that was a great year in the sense that it was my last year of playing pro hockey and lived in a gated community with a pool and a bunch of other pro athletes from the other uh, pro teams. And then I, I did end up spending the summer there, uh, lived on the beach for the summer and considered staying there, but came back home. So, so you saw a lot in the in a good period of time, I guess, uh, I was going to say short or long, but you covered a lot of territory anyway, between the Olympics and your, uh, I didn't, we didn't talk about my European career either. <laughs> That's yeah. Yeah. So was that extending past the, uh, that was before my, that I, I, I did it kind of, I'm going to say ass backwards. Yeah. But I played in Europe before I played minor pro. Hockey. Okay. So, which would be natural I, following the Olympics, probably, right? Yeah. Yeah. I ended up playing in, uh, I played in uh, Vienna. And so that was pretty phenomenal as far as a place to live. Uh, different mindset as far as hockey went. Uh, it was in the first league in Austria and I did fairly well and, you know, made a bit of money. And then uh, I ended up in uh, Helsinki, Finland. And, you know, little did I know the history of the two teams there, Jokerit and IFK, where, you know, some of the biggest players come from Finland, played for those organizations. And I think the first night I was there, someone said, oh, you're a Canadian professional hockey player. Do you, do you know Yari Curry? <laughs> I said, well, I know who he is, but I don't know him. <laughs> well, you're in Canada, aren't you? And I said, yeah, but it's a big place. So uh that was that was quite interesting way different style of life um uh very cold very dark but again just another you know great life experience and another um opportunity to develop, develop your game as well before the yeah. step to the penguins is that uh no i was i played for the penguins before that okay before that then, then that was part of your yeah extension of yeah. playing it was okay. kind of like pittsburgh uh europe minor pro and then I was playing, I I can't even remember how it all played out, but I remember playing senior A hockey for Georgetown. 
And we were riding on this rattly old bus and I'm thinking, what the heck am I doing? And then the next year, that's the year I think I went back to minor pro. It's all kind of a fog, but I was playing against the Montreal Canadiens for the Boston Bruins. And I'm like, a year ago, I was playing senior A hockey. And I think it was the year I had to take off at U of T because I was ineligible to play uh, because I played in the NHL. Um, and and so I played some senior A hockey. And then the next year, I'm playing against the Montreal Canadiens. And I was like, wow. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I played in Europe, but that was before I my minor league career was the end of my hockey. So then the the next chapter, you move on to coaching. So how did that come to be? And when did you realize you wanted to have a career coaching at U of T? You talked about physical education before. So um, did did one did you put one ahead of the other once you had been through this hockey experience? Well, I first started to, you know, I was going to pursue a career as a physical and health education teacher. So I I taught. Uh, my first teaching job was history, Scarborough Board of Education. It was midway through the year, like I, I got hired second term. So I was a history teacher, high school history teacher. And I was like, man, like, you know, it's nobody cares who you are now. <laughs> Nobody's asking you for your autograph. They have no idea who you are or where you've been. Just do your job. And so I did that for the the second part of that year. And then the next year I got hired on full time. I was a, I worked at a school for special needs. It's actually where my, my, my wife. And um, then the next year I got on as a physical and health education teacher full-time. And the people in the, who had the, the guys who were running the phys ed program there, they were there for like 30 years, the three of them. And they they basically kind of handpicked me to say, well, you're going to take over this headship because we're getting out of here soon. And I was an assistant coach at, uh, well, we call it TMU now, but Ryerson. And while I was teaching um, and I kind of got the bug to say, yeah, wanted wanted to wanted to coach, but it's not easy to get a full-time university coaching job. So I did it kind of on the side while I was teaching. Well, I actually also coached with Paul Titanic at U of T as an assistant. And he used to call me, I think the first two years I was doing that, and this was all during the time I was teaching. He called me in May and I thought he was calling me to say like, I, you're not coaching with me anymore. You got to find somewhere else to coach. But what he was calling me about was saying, you need to go and be a head coach somewhere, but you can come back and be, the assistant coach here if you want so I did that for two or three years and then he called me one time and I'll never forget I was sound asleep on the couch and phone rang as per usual in May or whatever he used to call me and he says you know you got to become a full-time head coach and I said well yeah but and he goes I'm leaving U of T I'm gonna you know spend time more more time with my kids and coach my son and I'm recommending that you get the job so I took the job, but again, he'll tell you, I called him probably not every day, but probably every second day through that first year. Like, what do I do? What do I do with this? What do I do? He was great. And he's like a lifelong friend, right? He coached me. I coached with him and he was kind of my mentor as far as, you know, what do I do in this situation? So that's how it all kind of started. I mean, you know, there was a funny moment at Ryerson. I, the first 
year that I was a coach, uh, we didn't win a game. And that year was the 25th anniversary or something, I don't know, or 20th anniversary of the undefeated team I played with at U of T. So here I am going to celebrate an undefeated OUA season, and I'm coaching on a team that did not win a game. So it's pretty, pretty ironic. But you got your feet wet with that experience, right? And, and once again, the timing worked out for you again. And a real long-storied career, and again, for being a person of color, um, to coach for such a long period of time. Uh, could you tell us how long your career lasted at the U of T? I coached for uh, 22 years as the head coach. And, um, you know, I thought I knew a lot when I started and I didn't know anything. <laughs> it was it was kind of eye-opening. And as I got went along, I learned more. Was I a good coach? Um, I hope to think that, like, at at – we didn't always have the best players, but we always had really hardworking teams and really uh, like teams that played systematic, good defensive hockey. And we had a lot of success because of that. And we had great guys and we had like great student athletes. And so it, it was a really good experience. I would say that the last couple of years were tough. Like I never felt like I was going to work ever when I played hockey and when I coached hockey. But the last couple of years, especially the last year, that was the only year in my 22-year career that we didn't make the playoffs. Um, it was really trying and it was really hard and it was like going to work every day. And it was kind of a perfect time to like bow out. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I'll tell you about my thoughts about coaching today, but that's probably coming down the road. But that that career ended and it also gave me an opportunity because people don't realize like when you're a coach at the university level, like your family is on the back burner and with hockey, it's a full, like some sports at university, like soccer, they start in August and they end in November. This starts in August and ends in March and it never really ends because you're recruiting and you're, and so, you know, I had young kids and, you know, my son was born when I, probably four years into my coaching career and my daughter probably seven years into my coaching career. And I just, I was lucky because we lived close to the university, but I really didn't spend a lot of time with them and I didn't go to their sporting events. I didn't go to my son's hockey, like nothing. And so it was really great for three years. I think we were here where I wasn't coaching and it wasn't <laughs> great for them. I had to get used to you. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, <laughs> this, yeah. this guy is always around. And then we had the pandemic and we were all here. Right. So it was, it was, it was really fulfilling for me because I got to spend time, like all kinds of time with them where, you know, we spent lots sure. of time together in the summer, but not, not in the winter. Um, so. And also I, I read about some experiences you had with Maple Leafs as maybe a guest coach or something. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, that, that was real kind of short-lived. They brought me in to uh, actually, I asked if I could, could you know, be a guest coach and they welcomed me. Uh, Pat Quinn was the coach at the time. And so I spent like the whole training camp with them. Um, it was a great experience. Like, you know, because, you know, at one time you're, you're a player and, you know, you've probably been in like because I was on the national team and it was high level and I played in the NHL and the American Hockey League, pretty high level. 
And like the Leafs were my like childhood team, right? So to be able to go to training camp and and work with them and be on the ice with them and just sort of see what was going on from the inner workings and maybe help my own coaching uh, was really great. So, you know, that was a great experience. I wasn't there that long, but for training camp, but I, I knew some of the guys, I was friends with Glenn Healy. So, you know, I kind of hung out with him and I knew Steve Thomas pretty well. So what, what do you think needs to change in order for there to be uh, more uh, diversity, either at the uh, grassroots level or um, and moving along into NHL in terms of more underrepresented uh, groups joining the NHL in the future? Yep. I think, I think one thing is education uh, for, for everybody so that, you know, when we're talking about education, we're talking about educating people about diversity and, you know, you hear it all the time. People saying like, everyone is welcome. Hockey is for everyone, but you know, do all people believe that? I, I don't know. I'm not in their skin, but I would think that that's, that's one thing that has to happen. I, I think that the unfortunate part is, and I, I teach a course at the university, hockey and Canadian culture, and, and you know, we, we've talked about this, that it's an elitist sport. And so lots of people, and not just people of color, but lots of people are choosing not to play because they can't afford it. And starting programs uh, in order for people to afford to play this expensive game, uh, it would be something that you know would help because there are like there are so many phenomenal athletes that could play hockey like but they're playing other sports because they can't afford to play hockey and unfortunately even in our society uh you know unless there are scholarships all the other sports are going the same way like you know if you play rap basketball you you may go to a prep school and you may have to spend like my daughter played soccer, play soccer and it's not cheap. She played volleyball. It's not cheap, you know? And, and, and so I think that somehow finding a way, if we're talking about people of all different ethnicities and economic backgrounds to be able to, to be more visible in hockey, um, you know, there has to be opportunity somewhere. And, you know, I, I just think there's not enough opportunity because of the financial drawbacks in it, but it happens in so many other sports. It's not just hockey. Yeah. We've seen that in recent, more than recent years, the advent of um, you used to just play hockey summertime, you would go and play another sport, but then it changed and it started to be, you play hockey around. Then it was like going you know, the shooting school and this goalie school and, Equipment, stick, stick prices change. You used to have the Sherwood 5030 that was costing 19 bucks. And now people tell me it's like $200 for a stick. So, so. Oh, it, it, it's, it's, it's more than $200. It's like, and you know, I mentioned my son plays hockey and he still plays and he plays college hockey, but um, he never did all these camps and everything partially because I didn't believe in it. Um, and he played soccer and you know, how do we, how do we correct that? Again, that's through education of parents that, you know, there's 1% of the population that plays hockey that's going to play in the National Hockey League from any age, one age group. So if the ultimate goal is to play in the National Hockey League, it's probably not going to happen. Um, but there's so many great things that can happen by playing hockey, um, you know, and 
know, my son's never going to be a professional hockey player, but he's a really good student. He's an engineer and he loves playing hockey. And so he's able to continue because he goes to school and plays. Um, so that, that sort of thing, I think, you know, if people can be educated about, about that. And then at the same time, you know, hockey pulling back a little bit and saying, you don't have to play all summer. Like it's wrong in, in my opinion anyway, but then there's the people that played all summer that are in the NHL. And so, you know, that so-and-so he was, he played on this team and that team and he played on five teams and he played all summer. And like, that's just, that's sending out maybe the wrong message. And I think those guys, whether they played in the summer or not, they'd make the NHL. They're just talented. Right. And so, yeah, there, there's other, there's other side of it and just engaging people in the game. Um, you know, this all started for me with the card collecting and there's ways of pe- to engage people on multiple sports and that's, that, that costs money too, but there are fans of the game. There's people that choose not to just start learning to skate. I know there's some great programs out there right now that are exposing people that may become parents someday and may draw their kids into hockey. So there's uh, all kinds of different approaches that can probably engage people to a different level, but you are right that the, the cost factor, regardless of who you are, that's one dramatic change that I've seen over the last decade, just to, to enter the game for registration fees, equipment, tournaments. But there's another factor too, and this came up in my class. Um, the One of the things is when people first came to Canada, they assimilated into what, people did in Canada. They sat and they watched hockey on Saturday night and everybody played hockey on the street. Didn't matter where you came from. And at that time, you know, we're talking about maybe immigrants from uh, European immigrants, right? Uh, But today people come and you don't play hockey. Like people aren't playing hockey out in the street. It just, it's just not happening. Like everything is uh, regimented. You, you you don't just like free play. Program-based, right? Yeah. Yeah, everything's program based. And and that was the other thing that with our kids anyway, and I'm not saying my kids are perfect, but they're still playing sport at university. They they we didn't allow them to be programmed all the time. Go out and fool around in the backyard. Or, so you just can't have the love and the passion of creativity and trying different things, right? People are dropping out at 14, 15 because they're they're burnt out. So there's lots of things we can fix. It's gonna take a lot of people though. <laughs> But I th- I think that in wrapping it up, that kind of mirrors your career too, that you sort of had this, uh, you played at your developmental level, you still love the game, you kind of kept pushing and took what you could from each experience and led to a long career at different different levels. And also your experiences as a, as a coach uh, are really, really incredible achievements. So last question I have is what advice would you give uh, to a young hockey player today? And I think you've touched on some points, but just sort of wrapping up some highlight points would be great. Yeah. I think that um, a couple of things that don't try not to get sucked into the, you have to play all year, try to play other sports to become an athlete first. Um, Do you have to work on your skills? Absolutely. And when you're at the rink, you have to be a hundred percent invested in playing hockey when you're away from the rink do something else so that it's not hockey 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 all the time i think that that would be you know what we talk about this as student athletes when you're in the classroom you are a student and when you are on the ice or on the field or on the court you are an athlete 
And so you give 100% or everything you've got in that moment. But when you're not in that moment, you do something else. And so you have a clear mind. And, you know, there's going to be studies now that come out that like kids have, I have hip problems now, but there's kids that are 15 years old that have hip problems because they're using the same muscles all the time and they're not using their other muscles. So that that would be my advice to, and, and to just enjoy it. Uh, it. It's hard for kids to enjoy playing hockey now, the pressure, you know, the draft at 15, who enjoys that year? You know, it's, it, you got it. I just loved going. I didn't have to, I wasn't worried about it because I didn't think I was, like, I didn't think anybody was interested in me. So I could just go play and, and maybe that's my good fortune. Right. But you got to enjoy it. Didn't internalize pressure really. It was just about the game and the play, right. And having fun. So that's uh wise advice. So uh, Darren, it's been wonderful having you on the podcast. Uh, it's been great to get to know you better. It's been a great experience and maybe we'll chat again soon in the future. Hope, hope to do so. This was great. I didn't think I could talk that long. <laughs> We're proud to be working with Hockey Equality. Hockey Equality is on a mission to create diversity at all levels of the game of hockey. By lowering financial barriers for BIPOC female and other equity deserving youth hockey players. If you've been moved by the stories shared on this podcast and want to help make hockey accessible to all, check out hockeyequality.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to share this story with your kids, then check out My Hockey Hero. It's shorter and suitable for the whole family. You can click the link in the show notes or find it wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Podstarter production. production.